felt very confident that if anyone ever really delved into my case and don't just read what the newspapers are saying, that they could see who I am as a human being and that, yes, I had made a terrible mistake that I'd taken full responsibility for, but it did not warrant the rest of my life being in prison. Alice Marie Johnson will be the first one to tell you. She made a mistake. We all make mistakes. We go through hard times and then harder times, mentally, physically, emotionally, financially. Sometimes we even make bad choices. And some bad choices come with equally bad real-world consequences. For Alice Johnson and the family that loved her, they were devastating. A life sentence without parole. But Alice found hope in the darkest of places, while also managing to do the same for other women. She was making a huge impact behind bars, putting one foot in front of the other in motion, in prayer, in service, and in love. And decades later, she became free, with some assistance from a very unexpected place. And I said, Kim, who? She said, you don't know who Kim Kardashian is. And I said, no, who is that? I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a show about hope and possibility on the other side of pain. And today, of forgiveness and second chances. Alice was born in Cochrane, Mississippi, number six of nine siblings. Born in 1955 in the Jim Crow South during the Civil Rights Movement to two incredible parents who taught her from a young age to always look beyond your obstacles because they will pass. They were a close-knit family living in poverty, 14 people in a two-bedroom house, But Alice loved church. She loved singing in the choir. And she loved her siblings. Her parents were sharecroppers who dreamed of escaping the dairy farm and cotton fields and starting over somewhere new. So being sharecroppers, every year, whatever was left over, they would, you know, get the money. They'd do things on credit. They would have a bill. And this particular year, that year of what I call our great escape. My parents just knew that this time they'd made enough money to maybe put a down payment down to start buying another piece of property, as they called it, in Olive Branch, which is not very far from where we live, but it was as different as day and night. It was looked at as opportunity. And that particular year, they were told that there was no money left over. And this really incited something in my mother and my father's heart. So my mother, being a good cook, started selling plates at baseball games to make money. And as they gathered up and hid the money, they bought a piece of property in Olive Branch and they bought, they were called prefabricated homes. It was a Jim Walker house, but you had to do the sheep rocking and you had to, you know, get the wiring done. So at night, After everybody, my parents, after working hard all day, would go to the place they had secretly bought 
and put the sheep rock up and was getting it ready for us. And so I remember them waking me up in the middle of the night. I was only five years old, but I can still remember that night. And I had hands clasped over my mouth and I was told, don't say a word. And everybody else was being quiet. And they took me to the to the car. And a lot of our cousins had shown up with trucks and they started loading our little furniture on in these trucks and boxes had already been packed. So in the middle of the night, we slipped away from our sharecropper's hold on our life. And when we got down to the road, that was such a, so much joy. Everybody was celebrating and screaming because we had gotten away with it. And we moved into our home in Olive Branch. And that was like freedom for us. We've got our own place instead of a two-room house. We've got three bedrooms, a bathroom, living room, dining room, kitchen. It was like we had moved into a mansion. And I know... As you said, this is the beginning of what felt like a path to freedom. Yes. And your mom knew deeply that education was freedom. Yes. And I'm obsessed with your mom, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) My mother truly was a woman ahead of her times. And she knew that in order to fully escape, education would be the pathway to true freedom. So... She always would work two jobs. My father would work extra jobs. And we'd work right along with my mother because she was such a good cook. She worked at a country club and she would do special events cooking for people. But that was really what our family was known for. And the path to education began. She knew also she made sure that we had other skills. All of my siblings were in the band. Because another pathway was getting a band scholarship. And so that is how many of my oldest siblings went away to college. And so that became just a thing in our house. We always were at the dinner table. And, you know, one of the things I talk about in my book is that I knew the Lord's Prayer before I even knew my ABCs. And that is the truth. My father was such a praying man. My whole family were people who prayed. But my father was such a praying man. I never remember eating any meal without prayer being at the head, the top of the meal. There had to be prayer. And so we would sit around the the dinner table. And that was important that we gathered together in the dining room, the older kids and and my parents, they'd be there, but we all gathered together. We had little benches in the kitchen for the younger kids. We had a particular part of the chicken that we all were, were to eat. But we always talked about dreams. Alice's mother was a dreamer. She spoke to them about education, about colleges they could go to, what the future looked like. She gave them something to believe in. She would also tell them stories of success outside of their small town. Lessons that would later serve Alice in a big way. As a teenager, you became pregnant early. So tell me about that chapter and how it changed things for you. Well, having grown up in the church, I always loved the church. But I had this yearning inside of me to really... Some of my friends, they were living kind of a different life. And it was coming into the 70s. It's the late 60s, about to be 1970. 
And I really wanted to be able to do some of the things that I saw my friends doing. At 14, I, I literally, in my heart, walked away from church because I felt that I always loved the Lord. And I felt that it was something that was missing. And I remember standing up at a revival and it's like my eyes were open and some things just weren't right. I wanted more than what I was seeing. And I stood up in the middle of the of a revival and said, there is more to God than this. <laughs> and I stumped out of church. So I'm out there alone and I'm formulating my own thoughts and I met this guy in the band who was a good dancer. I'm turning 15 and he was a handsome young man and uh, he was a couple of years older than me. My first date. So I'm dating him. My first experience, believe it or not, I got pregnant. Wow. And I kept that hidden as long as I could. I, I didn't even want to realize that I was pregnant. I had decided that I was going to change my life and this is not for me. I'm going to do better. I'm so scared at this moment. And when my parents found out that I was pregnant, it was on a Monday. By that Wednesday, my parents brought to me a stack of invitations with a list of neighbors to fill out their names on it. I read what I was filling out what I was addressing to neighbors, and it was an invitation to a wedding, my wedding. When I saw that, I panicked. I'm like, I'm not getting married. I don't want to get married. And that Saturday, I found myself 15, pregnant, and married. Wow. Yeah, and that that day and age, I would imagine that that was the norm. It was the norm. You, It was shameful for a a girl to be pregnant with no husband. You know, I had to respect my parents and I loved them so much. So I I didn't blame them. I blamed myself for getting in that trouble, but I didn't know how to be a wife or mother. I had to learn. It was a terrible marriage. I was too young to be married. My ex-husband was too young to be married. He was living life as a single man and I'm dedicated to my children and really to work And also back then, I missed uh, my whole sophomore year in high school because I was not allowed to go to school pregnant because it would set a bad example for the other girls. But I still had my friends bring me their books home, their work home, and I was studying it as though I was in school myself. You know, as you shared, you're married young and it's not a healthy relationship. You would go on to have more kids, but at the same time, you are incredibly hardworking, incredibly intelligent, I would say incredibly enterprising, and you become, despite this, the first black woman in your town to get an office job. Yes. In my senior year, well, the first thing I had to do was I didn't want to be behind my class. So I convinced my mother and I went to the Board of Education and convinced them that I knew the curriculum for a sophomore, and they didn't believe me. And they put together very difficult tests, had another school put it together, and I made 98% 
passing. I was disappointed that I didn't make 100 percent, but they allowed me to skip that grade. And while I'm still in school, I have a second child, my daughter, but she was born in August. So no one knew I was pregnant. And so I was able to finish school. And then my senior year, I will go to the secretarial college half a day because I had enough credits, even though I'd missed that year. I still had taken so much of my grades. I've always been a very good student and I probably could have graduated valedictorian, but they added in that year that I had missed. And so I ended up graduating with a B average, but I didn't care. I had secretarial skills. I could type almost 100 words a minute, over 90 words a minute. And I knew that I had to have some type of skill because my husband was out of control at this point. And so I literally integrated my town's office. No black woman had ever had an office job. But when I took the test, I impressed them in the interview and I had I could type so fast with very few errors. And so I literally had the first office job there. My parents were so proud. And my marriage is still going crazy. Me and my husband, we separate, we get back together, we separate. And so I decided that I'm going to take some other college classes because I'm knowing that I've got the need for education has been really implanted in my heart. I knew I had to get more. So I started taking college classes and some of the students would watch my children while I was in class because they saw how determined I was to at least get more education. I was always so focused on my children. We had three more children during our marriage before it finally ended in divorce. But during this time, I would have jobs and I would quickly promote because I made sure that they would notice how hard I'd work. I'd be early to work and late to leave. That always served me well, having very good work ethics. And you talked about moving up and promotions. The story that propelled your career and professional life forward began with a poem. You are a writer. Mm -hmm. And someone in your office had died, and you wrote a poem, which you have said sort of captured the essence of what people were feeling. You put words to it. Share how that poem turned into opportunity. Kimmy, my teachers had discovered when I was 10 I could write. And they started entering me in contests. The first poem I ever wrote at 10 was Who Is He? And it was about God. And that's how I would pour my pain out also during my marriage. I would put on paper how I felt. And so I walked into the office. I'd gotten a job with the Urban League because I absolutely refused to be on welfare or anything else. I didn't want my children to see that that was something that was okay to be on assistance. So I wanted them to see that their mother was a hard worker too. I wanted to be an example to them. So I'd gotten this job with the Urban League as a secretary. And when I walked into the office, one of my coworkers, Greg, had been killed in a horrible accident. And Greg was an only child. I wrote a poem about how we were feeling in the office. And one of the ladies, one of the staff members, when she saw the poem, they were just so happened to have a board meeting that night. And the vice president of personnel, the head of all of personnel was one of the board members. And Greg was his mentee. 
when he read the poem that I had written, he sent for me and asked me, did you write this? And I said, yes. He said, do you mind if I share it with Greg's mother? And then he asked me if I would like to work at FedEx. Federal Express is what it was called at that time. And I said, yes. He said, go and I will give them a call and tell them to expect you. But I want you to go and apply at Federal Express. I got there. I made very high scores on the typing test. And I was hired almost on the spot. I was in the clerical pool. And that meant that I could work in different departments. I quickly moved from in the clerical pool to being a manager in computer operations. I became a manager there because I had such good interpersonal skills and they needed to balance it off. But while I was there as a manager, I learned everything about the computers, how to shut them down, bring them up from a cold start, troubleshoot. I started excelling the ones who had computer degrees. Alice kept learning everything she could in each of her roles. Recognized as a leader and promoted within the company, all while raising five kids. Alice moved into management, facilitating classes and traveling around the country. And then she started to notice that something wasn't right within Federal Express. In fact, something was very wrong. I started noticing that women and people of color were being bypassed. I would apply for the job, and every time it would be some excuse why I wouldn't get it. And also the other women and the other people of color there were not promoting up. So I started keeping a record of this because it just wasn't right. And the final straw came when I had passed and they kept telling me that um, the last job that I'd applied for, they brought someone in from the outside who was not qualified. I decided to file a grievance with all of my evidence, not just saying it, but with the evidence that we were being passed up, the women were being passed up also. I filed a grievance and my boss was so angry with me for doing it. He told me that I would never move up in that company ever. And so I went ahead with it anyway. And on the day that it was to be heard, it was supposed to be a representative from personnel who would be in the meeting to hear the grievance and to give the results. When I went into the meeting, everyone was thought that I was going to lose because I had angered higher ups by filing that grievance. But I knew I was right because I had the evidence. I had the data that proved it. When I walked into the room, who was there? But the head of personnel, Jim Perkins, was in that room. And when I walked in, he greeted me, and I greeted him by his first name. Everyone was shocked. But he agreed with me, and he apologized for what had taken place. They had investigated, and what they did was it created change, not only at that local location, but around the country. They did the right thing. Those who had been passed up, for the next level of promotion, were all automatically promoted to right that wrong. I love that story. I just envisioned him, you walking in that room and seeing him. So you're really thriving in your career, really present and connected with your children. 
But it's been two decades and a really unhealthy relationship. Yes. Uh, after 19 years, me and my husband finally divorced. There's so much more in between that, but suffice it to say, he'd had a couple of children do it by other women doing our marriage, and it finally ended. And having been so young, when I got married, I really had not experienced life. My focus was always on my children. I very much was a hands-on mother that you could say I almost homeschooled my children. I taught them, even though they went to, to school, my oldest daughter graduated when she was 17. She was so smart because I education, I passed it on to my children that how important education was. So we had our chalkboards and their books. And so I always spent a lot of time with my kids, with their homework and reading to them. And my daughters, I gave her that interest in writing and reading because I read stories and wrote stories for them. But after the breakup of my marriage, um, single mother, five children, and it took me a while before I date. So the marriage ends and you start dating, meet a man, and that would really change the course of things. That would completely change the course of my life. So take me back to that time, you know, where you were mentally and emotionally and him arriving on the scene. Well, emotionally... I was very much a broken woman. Even though my husband and I had a very bad marriage, it still represented something in my life of security and just something that we'd broken up, but I really didn't think that it would just end like that. And even though it had to end, there was still an emptiness in my heart that, uh, you know, maybe I wasn't good enough. And so meeting Ted, at a very vulnerable time in my life, I didn't want to go through that. Even though I knew it was a wrong relationship, I make no excuses for that bad decision uh, because I had been a wife who had been cheated on. And when I met him, he was going through separations and all of these other crazy things. But, you know, looking back on it, it was part of it was kind of a ruse. He was a professional gambler. I started going to the dog races. I started gambling, and this was fun. It was so much fun to me because I, a lot of my life had not been so much fun. So I saw a whole new life opening up to me, and I became addicted to gambling. I didn't even know what a gambling addiction could be possible. I think we always think that we can control things until we realize we can't control them. Alice started panicking because bills were not being paid. Then Ted asked if he could borrow some money. One of her work trips had just been canceled, and he asked if he could borrow the money from the expense allowance she hadn't used. She had 30 days before it had to be turned back in. Ted promised he would pay her back by then. He kept making excuses. He never paid her back. That cost me my job and my career of 10 years with this company. So you have no child support. You have five kids at home. You've been climbing the ranks and built a career and a reputation at FedEx. And boom. It's all gone up in smoke. Bad decisions, 
I went deeper in and further down. The more I tried to pull myself up, I'm in a panic at this state. I don't know what to do. I'm getting my house that's really about to be foreclosed on it because we were. I was had found myself in a position before to buy a house. I was good credit had always been very important to me. My credit score had all the way dropped from gambling and not paying bills and trying to win back what I had lost. I gave them a big win, trying to win a big win by just going just crazy time in my life. I really didn't know what to do. I'm in a total panic. I had even gotten to the points that lights would be cut off. Bill collectors were calling. I changed my voice sometimes trying to avoid because I couldn't pay my bills. And my life is spiraling out totally out of control. And we I don't even know where my ex-husband is. He has totally disappeared. We haven't heard from him. Zero child support, no help. I even tried to find him. We couldn't find him. So as you said, your um, financial security and building this life for yourself and your children and things quickly go south. You're financially in real trouble. And during this same time of, you know, your house is being foreclosed, your car is repossessed, you lose your son, your baby son, Corey, who you called Coco. Yes. So tell me about Coco and losing Coco. I know he was 12 at the time. Yes. Right before I lost Coco, a cousin came to visit. Ted had been doing some other things that I wasn't even really aware of. And this crazy, because I'm about to lose everything, an offer comes. And that offer comes to be like a middle person. All I have to do is call and pass a number on. And I felt terrible the first time I was able to keep my lights on and just get food on the table. And then shortly after that, my conscience is kicking me because I know this is wrong. I'm stepping away from this and my son is killed in an accident. His 14-year-old brother, who they were best friends. I had three sons that were stair-steppers. They were one grade apart, my last three children. But Coco and Bryant were extremely close. They always called themselves best friends to everybody. They were kind of like me and my sisters were. We were best friends. And he was riding on his scooter. And Coco had just gotten this kid in play haircut. He was so cute. But he was my baby baby. The only child that I had ever let sleep in the bed with me was Coco. And he was truly a mama's boy because he was raised totally without his father, almost totally. (sighs) Anyway, uh, they left on the scooter. And when he left there, he had his helmet in his hand. It was something about that day. He turned back around and came back to give me one more kiss before he left. And uh, I told him to please be careful. Make sure you have your helmet on. And he took it off because he had this, didn't want to smush his hair down because they were just going around the corner. And another teenager hit them when they pulled away from the stop sign. We don't know who was at fault. I just know that my son was gone. I was crazy. I didn't even have money to bury my child. Ted helped me out, and I didn't really care anything about life or anything else after that. 
and I started back with the phone calls, allowing my phone to be the phone. I honestly, Kimmy was not the uh, orchestrator. I didn't make the deals. I didn't know anything about drugs. I never used or personally put the deals together. But when someone was stopped with my number in their pocket, I became their boss. I said, if I was their boss, I was the worst boss in history. So you, you've you lost Coco. As you said, your cousin and her husband approach you about... If I, if I knew anyone that could, I'm going to say, move some drugs for them. I was so insulted because, of course, I don't know anyone. And when I told Ted, I didn't even tell him right away. I told him what they had said to me. He said, so what did you say? And I said, I told him, no, I don't know anyone who does that. I said, do you? He said, yeah, you're looking at him. So that's how that whole thing started. What you were asked to do was to be a phone mule. Yes. Which was very removed. I mean, you you weren't what people would envision, right? You're not using drugs. You're not touching drugs. So explain to people what you were asked to do as a phone mule. As a phone mule, I found other women in prison who had played similar roles, foolishly like I did. And what that means is I didn't have a criminal record. I'd never been in trouble before. So no one would ever be watching my phone number. So when someone would call me, I would give them the number where they could call. And so the people didn't know me personally. They knew maybe my voice or they knew my number. But that kept the person who was the actual kingpin of the whole thing, the movers, that kept them insulated. And I would be the one with the phone records. And so that proved out. When this man was caught with drugs, he had my phone number. And so when they got my number, they started pulling phone records and they saw that I had these strange numbers that had been coming to my phone. And so initially I was offered no time to, I'm going to say, basically tell them who, but I couldn't really tell them who, you know, no one except Ted, or maybe someone who had give another number, which they already had this. So I couldn't be as cooperative as they wanted me to be. And they offered me three to five years in the end if I was just going to take a plea. Well, my family had hired an attorney and this was shocking to them. My children didn't know what was going on. My family didn't know what was going on. I was living a double life. And so it was it was shocking that I'd gotten involved. And I don't make any excuse, Kimmy, for what I did. What I did was absolutely wrong. That all came crashing down on me, just how wrong it was. I knew that I was doing wrong, but I insulated my thinking by saying, well, I'm not really selling drugs. I'm not really doing this. I'm just, it's simple, but it wasn't simple. Any part of a conspiracy of being involved in that is wrong. I've never tried to shy away and say, well, I didn't do nothing. I did do something. What I did was hurtful. And to be any part of a drug conspiracy. And what I didn't know about was conspiracy. And my attorney convinced me that they don't have anything on you. You don't have any money. Even in when the government had to do a pre-sentence report, that's all part of the record. I only had $500 in the bank. 
I wasn't living a lavish lifestyle. My house was not even a hundred thousand dollar house. The things didn't add up. And my attorney said to me, he said, you should not take that plea. It's going to ruin your life with that criminal record. You should take it to trial. And so like a fool, not knowing about conspiracy and not knowing what his role was in the whole thing, I go to trial. And after a six-week trial and convicted by an 11-person jury, I was found guilty of attempted possession of 106, I think it's six pounds or kilograms or something, of attempted possession. During the sentencing phase, the jury was at a loss. A conviction meant conspiracy, and conspiracy meant Alice would be accountable for all others involved, including the kingpin. He was one of the first to plead guilty. Even though he had a long criminal record, he was able to negotiate a pretty sweet plea deal by testifying against others to hold someone else accountable. And that someone was Alice. Because of the conspiracy charge for a collective crime, and because Alice decided to go to trial, she got the penalty. Instead of an estimated 106 kilos, that number jumped to 3,000. Something you can no longer do. But back then, a prosecutor could just estimate the value of drugs. You know, I couldn't believe it. I didn't even know that a life sentence was on the line, that I could possibly be given a life sentence. I didn't find that out until right before my sentencing. Yeah, it's just, you know, it, it's a really just a shocking verdict and sentencing. No one in my family was prepared for what my sentence would be. You know, I, I, I can still hear my parents in that courtroom when the judge said life plus 25 years, because even though I'd gotten the papers right before then, right before my sentencing, I was in the county jail for seven months. I went into custody on Halloween when the jury came back with the verdict of those charges. Even then, my, my attorney still didn't tell me what I might be facing. I'm thinking in my mind that I'm probably going to get the five years because they gave a, a range of a plea deal, three to five years, and probably it would be three because I had no prior criminal record. And so uh, I'm thinking in my mind, I'm going to get five years. And I thought, I don't know how I'm going to do this. But when I got those papers and saw what the recommendation was right before I went to sentencing, and I told some of my family members, I said, but don't worry, this has got to be a mistake. So when I did go before the judge and I was sentenced to life plus 25 years, it was silence. And then the first sound I heard was my father, who was a very strong man, sobbing. He burst out with this terrible ear-piercing sob. And my heart just fell into my feet. And then I could hear my children and I could hear them sobbing in the courtroom. And that was a terrible day. How old were the kids? How old were your kids at the time? So my son, Brian, he was still a teenager. He was 17. And my other son, 
he had just entered college and my second daughter had been in college and my oldest daughter had just graduated college. So the three older ones were, one was barely, he was still a teenager. He was barely an adult, my oldest son. But the other two were 21. My oldest daughter had graduated from college, had just graduated the year before uh, the trial. So she became like their mother. She had to take on the role of mother to my children. But still, my children and I were extremely close. And here they're being told, they were literally told that they would never see me alive again as a free woman. Coming up, Alice is sent to a federal prison 1,500 miles away from her kids. Not the low-security kind, but a high-security prison camp. And despite the harsh environment, Alice discovers a talent inside her that had been locked away for a very long time. But first, our featured charity. Back in a moment. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every story you hear, we donate $2,000 to our guest's favorite charity. Today's episode benefits Taking Action for Good, TAG for short. The TAG Foundation's mission is to use storytelling to put human faces to America's failed criminal justice system and to promote justice and mercy by reducing, through early releases, the number of men and women who are needlessly incarcerated. You can support the work and learn more about the TAG Foundation by visiting their website, takingactionforgood.org. So those early months, what are you acclimating to? What is the environment that you now exist within? When I first arrived, I guess a little bit in shock, but from the time that I'd been locked up, I had prayed and I just fell on my knees and asked God if you can use me because I had to make sense out of what had taken place in my life that I'm about to go away for the rest of my life to spend in prison away from my children. And the first prison they sent me to was 1,500 miles away from my children, so they couldn't even come and see me. And so I arrive at this prison, this woman in this wheelchair. I hadn't been there but a very short time. I think probably the next day that I was there, I looked lost. I looked totally lost. And I guess she she could see that look on my face that I don't even know This is so foreign to me. And she came up to me and asked me, what is your name? It was an older white woman in a wheelchair. And I told her, Alice. And she said to me, Alice, bloom where you're planted. God knows where you are. God knows where you are. I'm so excited for this part of the interview because the impact you created, I know, you know, you have said and people have said about you that you're an optimistic person and a joy-filled person. But what you did with your time in prison is 
breathtakingly beautiful. I think it goes without saying as we talk about those things that none of it glosses over the pain and suffering and, you know, hellish environment that you had to manage. So I want to talk about a few things. And, you know, we talked about your poetry and your writing, but I had never heard of plays or playwrights. And that was one of the things that you did when you were planted in this women's penitentiary. Yes, I picked up my pen, Kimmy, and I started writing again. That gift had been locked away. And as I started writing, I started discovering talent. I first would write things for little programs, and then I was able to write full-length plays. The very first play that I wrote that was just an epic play that never changed was called The Life and Passion of Jesus Christ. I discovered talent that was unbelievable in prison. The atmosphere started changing in prison. As women started signing up for acting roles, I started choreographing dance ministry. It became a lightness. Culturally, things started changing. Now women who had never heard applause in their life was on stage and people were applauding them. And when they finished the plays, they would walk around the compound, not with their heads down, but with their heads up because someone has seen the value in them. I became mother, sister, grandma, all so many things to the women there. Encourager, I would always find ways that I could do something for them. And Kimmy, I'm going to tell you, they gave me such a gift. There is such a gift in serving other people that make you forget about your own problems. I couldn't think about or feel sorry for myself because I was seeing the results in prison of how change could take place. I looked for opportunities where I could maybe be that light in prison. It became a lifestyle for me. And I became happy in prison because I felt like I was fulfilling a purpose that God had for me. I even, some of the women, when they go home, I've received letters from young women's mother who was thanking me for what I did for the daughter that they sent back home to them. Things became opportunities. In prison, there became so many opportunities. One of my things I used to say to women is that everyone has the ability to do good. If you can do good, just do it. That we're all here in the same position away from our families, and we're all that each other have. We have families on the outside, but right here, we're each other's family. So you're bringing joy and light into the darkness of women's lives and becoming known for that. You're also witnessing great suffering. Oh, yes. So what is the correlation you draw between the women's suffering and pain and forgiveness? Yes. The thing that I came to know in my own life is that I could not walk in unforgiveness. It was strangling the life out of me. I would rehearse things in my life the things that my husband did to me that changed my life, the things that others did to me who testified, 
wrongly against me, the sentence that I felt that I had received, I had a lot of pent-up anger. I realized that that was hurting no one but me. So I intentionally chose to forgive. And that's not an easy thing, Kimmy. I started writing down. It became healing for me. I wrote down all the people throughout my life that I felt that had wronged me. And in my prayer, I would start praying for them and ask the Lord to help me to forgive them. But also on that list, I put myself because I had so much pain and unforgiveness for my actions. I kept reliving and rehearsing my choices that had caused me to be separated from my children and to cause my family pain by the things that I had done. So I had to pray also that I forgive myself. And it didn't happen overnight, but it happened. As I began praying for people, including myself, and releasing it, I found that I was freeing myself. And that is how I was able to live life in prison as a free woman, free of unforgiveness. And it became very evident that so many other women were being bound by unforgiveness. And I started ministering to them the freedom of forgiveness. We pray together and I started leading them into forgiving everyone in their lives. And that became, I think, freeing for many women. It's not easy. I'm not going to say everybody walked in unforgiveness, but it made their load lighter. It really brought healing to my heart. And I know it brought healing to a lot of them because what they were doing, they were rehearsing the same thing over and over, things that they could do nothing about. And the person who was the object of their unforgiveness wasn't feeling what they were feeling. That was one of the things that I told them, that you have all of these emotions that have you in misery. And these people have gone on, they're living lives. They don't care if you forgive them or not, but it's hurting you. You're the one who's being harmed. One woman in particular, I'm not going to call her name, but she used to walk bent over with a scowl on her face. If I could tell you through her forgiving those who had wronged her and forgiving herself, her whole continence changed. And I, you know, I heard you say, you know, sort of beautifully connect the dots on this, that when you were in prison, a lot of the women that you were living with that were your community, your in your, you know, family at that point were addicts and drug addicts. Yes. And that that was part of the reckoning was truly understanding that and sitting with how real and heartbreaking and devastating. So I, I've I've heard you say that that was part of the the dark process you go through to get to the other end of forgiveness and hope and peace. Yes. So many of them were there because of their addiction and also other women who had found themselves inadvertently involved in things like I'd been involved in. We really had to let it go because we couldn't do anything about the past. But one gift that was given to all of us was an opportunity to find forgiveness within ourselves and maybe into the harm that we may have done to other people ourselves. Because there was no woman there who had not brought harm to either their children or their family or their, there were very few that had spouses. <laughs> that was, most of us were single women taking care of our households. 
but really that forgiveness and that coming to reckoning and that just getting past your past. Thank you for that. That was that was beautiful, and I thought it was a really important part of your story. I know another thing that created great change within you, your sort of evolution as a person, a woman living in prison, was becoming a hospice worker. And I read that you would sing to women, that you would read to women, you would just sit with them and beside them in silence. And that's another kind of death sentence, right? You die in prison alone. And so you were with the prisoners who were dying as a hospice worker. And I know they would request you, that you were often requested to be by their sides. So how did that change you as a person and what did you learn from them? I learned the joy of living and the pain, the real pain of suffering in such a way like that. It made me really just count my blessings too. The thing that that drew me to them is I also had a life sentence, which was a living death sentence, an unexecuted sentence of death. And here these women are, many of them had outdates, but they were trapped in sick bodies and their loved ones were not there with them. And when I saw that there was a floor, a whole floor of women who were dying, I wanted to maybe bring them comfort and some joy and be there with them because I really didn't know what turn my own life was going to take. But it wasn't just from looking at myself, but it was looking at them and just thinking how that's got to feel to be in such a lonely place. And to die alone. So they had hospice training. I never thought that I would be doing something like that, but I took hospice training. And my very first patient that I sat with, I wanted to find out some things about her, what her faith was, if any of her friends knew her favorite things to read, what she liked. But then I found that some of the women, because that was the place where all the women came in the federal system to die. And so some of them had not even friends there. So I would read to them. I'd sing to them. I'd hold their hands. I'd just be there to bring them whatever comfort I could bring them. And one woman in particular was comatose. And that was one of my experiences that I take with me to this day is that you don't know you don't ever give up hope. And her family couldn't come in to see her anymore because they couldn't stand to see her in this state. Her eyes looking out of unseeing eyes, her mouth just kind of open. And they'd already warned me that this woman could not hear. And they would hear me sometimes singing to her. And I I found out that she was Catholic. So I learned this song, Ten Piedad, was, Oh Lord, Have Mercy. And I would sing that to her. And one day I was singing to her, to this woman who supposedly couldn't hear or speak or anything, and a tear started rolling down the side corners of her eyes. And I started thinking, can she hear me? And I sang it again, and I asked her, if you can hear me, blink your eyes. And she blinked. I ran out of there and got the nurse and told them that she can hear that she's trapped inside of her body, but she can hear. And she came in there and I asked her again to blink her eyes. 
if she could hear me. And she did. And the nurse, when he got the doctor, they ended up contacting her family. And her family was able to spend the last moments of life with her surrounding her bed. And, you know, just experiencing something like that further changed my life and made me more determined to be right there with these women if I could bring them any kind of comfort and hope because you don't know if they are trapped in their bodies and can really hear you. Do you remember the verses, some of the verses to the song? Is there any chance you would sing them for me? Just one or two? Yeah, very simple. It was, Oh, Lord, have mercy. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on me. Given Alice's passion for education, it's no surprise that she started teaching classes for other women in the prison. Interview skills, computer skills, and she started to realize that none of the women she knew with longer sentences were in the classes. She did some investigating, started studying law and prison rights, and what she found was an injustice, an opportunity for change. In other words, Alice was on the case and on a mission. And I was told that they were not allowed to take the classes because they were only giving them to women who had shorter sentences because why give them to those women when they weren't going home anytime soon? And my question was, how do you tell a woman not to hope? How do you tell a person not to prepare for a future? And when I questioned women as to why they had done nothing about this, they said to me, Miss Alice, it's always been like this. It's not going to change. But I couldn't accept that. So I started writing that up and I fought for them. And against all odds, after meeting with the warden and explaining their positions, what if the law changes and they're released? But you're creating an environment of hopelessness of where they're once again on the fringes and being felt that they were not good enough, that no one even believed in them that they could even do this. And so she listened to me and it was changed, not knowing that this would have a domino effect, but that rule was changed. And from then on, after I won that for them, they had to have a certain percentage of the class that had people, what we call long timers, Some of them had long sentences, like 30 years, which was equivalent to some people of life because there's no parole in the federal system. So lifers and anyone with a long sentence now had to be included with those classes. And some of those women, when laws changed, just like that, they were released from prison. Even after the law changed and Alice was sent to another prison, her good friend Cheryl would tell everyone who had a long sentence and the opportunity to take classes that they had Alice Johnson to thank for being in that class. After her release, Alice was honored by the UN for the change she created within the prison system. She was one of just four women honored at a Women's Day event. And I want to lead up here to the day of your release and 
you know, some of the milestones, both good and bad, that led up to that. I think it's important just for context and history. You were sentenced during the 90s. There was politically a lot happening with war on drugs, tough on crime, and you clearly are are tangled up and associated with this drug conspiracy. So the sentences at that time were particularly harsh and unjust, right, for the amount of time. Mm -hmm. And so as time moves forward, new leadership and people are looking at the past, right, and trying to figure out how to honor some of those wrongs and that people are still paying for these nonviolent crimes they committed decades ago, some as teenagers. And Obama is the president, and he initiates what is called the Clemency Project. And the idea is really the exact profile of who you are. The criteria is, you know, nonviolent. You have a perfect record, an impeccable record during your time that they've served, you know, a 10-year minimum. But there are flaws. You know, one of them is calling the prosecutor. In your case, it's been 20 years. He's had no interaction with you since and just looks back in the files and doesn't support you. And the other is that the criteria prohibits anyone connected with a crime organization. So in spite of all of the facts, all of the truth, you do not receive and I think your your story is raising in profile to the point where the ACLU is partnering with you to be the head of their campaign. So while Obama gave clemencies, I guess it was more than any other president since Truman, 2,000 people. Your case is denied. Everyone around you, including yourself, had, I think, a deep sense of hope. And and you tell me, maybe even close to certainty, that this clemency project would set you free. Yes. Yes, we were sure, especially... I've reached a level of prominence. Many articles are being written about me. ACLU has a campaign going where they show people that it was six people. I would call them their poster prisoners. Two women and four men. I was one of the women. I just knew from that campaign, I'm in magazines. I'm in newspapers. They're talking about my case. My two daughters even went to the White House for an event and talked about me at the event. And so we felt certain that even though the paperwork said a leadership role or connection with that, I didn't really have a leadership role. My hope was that somebody would really look at my case, that would look at me as an individual and see that I was a good candidate for the clemency project. So every time a list came out, my family would have these high hopes that my name is on that list of individuals who were receiving clemency, but I was not on the list. And all the way up until the end, the very last list, we still had hope that I was going to receive clemency because by this time, I've been on a national radiothon 
And I can honestly say that I was highly respected by both my peers, the other prisoners, and also by the warden, captain, the staff, because I was often called upon them to help diffuse situations because I had a lot of respect. I eventually spoke at universities, Yale University, the University of Washington in Seattle, and a Google YouTube event, a few Google YouTube events. So people are seeing me out here. I've got a lot of people. By the time it was over, I had 270,000 people who had signed a petition for my freedom. I became very popular as people heard my story. But still, it never rose to the level where I would receive clemency. And I now know, Kimmy, that was all part of a divine plan. I've never been angry. I was hurt that I didn't get clemency, but I still trusted God. I still had the hope that there's got to be another way that I'm coming home then, that this could not be the end. Meanwhile, Alice's story is out there in the world, including a four-minute video she made about her sentence. And people are learning who she is as a person in her heart. The video makes its way onto Twitter, and then Alice gets a call from a female attorney. The attorney simply says that she represents a very wealthy and powerful woman who has asked her to ask Alice if she can represent her as a client. And you have no idea who this person is, where they found you. How did that feel? Well, when I got the call, the legal call from Sean Holly, and she told me the very rich and powerful and famous woman wanted to help me gain my freedom, wanted to help me get out of jail, is what she said. And she asked me if I'd like that. And I playfully said, let me think about it. Yes. <laughs> uh, but it was all so shocking to me. And uh, she didn't tell me immediately who that was. And I went to the phone and called my daughter and asked her to Google Sean Holly to tell me who her clients were. And uh, her clients were also the Jenners and the Kardashians. I had heard of Kris Jenner, so I just knew that's who it had to be. I said, I know who it is. It's got to be Kris Jenner. And my daughter says to me, Mama, what if it's Kim Kardashian? And I said, Kim who? She said, you don't know who Kim Kardashian is. And I said, no, who is that? I'd heard the Kardashian name before during the O.J. Simpson trial, but I didn't know who Kim Kardashian was. And so two days later, I found out that it was Kim Kardashian. And Kimmy, I want to tell you, when that video op-ed started blowing up on the Internet and they told me it had gone viral, it scared me to death. I thought I had introduced a virus into the Internet. I, I knew. Hear that? Yeah, I knew nothing about the internet, uh, social media terms, because remember, there was no, when I went to prison in the 90s, there was no internet. You know, I want to talk about Kim calling you in that first conversation, but not knowing these things or not knowing who this person was, you know, you've become a close friend and advocate with her. As you said, it was, that space was created by you just knowing her as a human being. Right. And really having no understanding of her celebrity or power. It just allowed you to connect with her. And I'm sure she felt that very early on. So this woman named Kim 
eventually calls you and what is that first conversation? What does she say to well, you? Well, her voice was so sweet and kind, honestly. And we just started talking. And over a period of time, Kim just became Kim to me. And I started calling her my war angel because she really did go to war for me. I used to say she's not a regular angel who's come to help me. She's a war angel because she told me that no matter what, she was not going to give up fighting for me. It's it's so interesting because I obviously know who, who she is and have for a long time, but I didn't know that much about her, her as a human, right? Who she is as a person. And I listened to an interview she did, and it was so clear to me, she kept going back to her father being a lawyer, her pursuit of a law degree. It is clear that that has struck something in her that that is where her heart is. You know, everybody, the interviewers want to talk about everything else but her dream of becoming involved in the criminal justice system. But I I imagine that spark or that fire and finding your story and creating change had to be pivotal in that. I mean, you, you think about this. I'm a woman who was never supposed to come home. And for her to really look at my story, she didn't just read what the newspaper said about me. The lawyers broke down my whole case and showed what I actually was convicted of, which was 106 and not two to 3,000, and it was attempted possession. I think every lawyer that she brought in on my case was just could not believe that this could happen. And Kim, I think it was always laying dormant in her, this interest in this. Her father had planted those seeds, but my case actually woke it up. And when she got off into the fight, she was fully into the fight. She had many who were trolling her saying, what does she know about criminal justice reform? Who does she think she is? But, you know, I think it was because she did know about uh, how tough this process would be. She stayed so optimistic that it could happen. She felt that if she could just get to others after she contacted Jared and Ivanka and they looked at my case, my case was not just because Kim was a celebrity. My case had merit to it. The the truth of who you were in the prison and the fact that prisoners and wardens are writing on your behalf. So it was really someone to be a conduit to the White House, which is the only path for your clemency. And she played that role. And it sounds like she was dogged. She was relentless. She poured everything into this and assembling the team and deeply understanding every single detail of your case and the law, which I, I don't think that hard work with, I imagine, many setbacks oh, yes. should ever be glossed over that she just flew in oh, no. and, you know, uh, Kimmy, waved her magic wand. Kimmy, it took seven <laughs> months, seven months from the time my case came to Kim's attention, seven full months for her to finally get an audience, us thinking that maybe Jared and Ivanka They are talking to the president about my case. We had so many false alarms that my case finally had reached that level where someone could help. 
the only thing I wanted, I felt very confident that if anyone ever really delved into my case and don't just read what the newspapers are saying, that they could see who I am as a human being. And that, yes, I had made a terrible mistake that I'd taken full responsibility for, but it did not warrant the rest of my life being in prison. And so Donald Trump is the president at the time. You know your case is being evaluated and that Kim and her legal team have its attention. And at the same time, you have been through this process before. And you know the odds aren't great. President Trump had very low numbers for clemency. (laughs) And when you talk about, you know, the day that your life was, you know, forever changed, you said it was Wednesday. (laughs) You, You knew you would get some information, but it was Burger Day and you were not going to miss Burger Day. So you decide to go have lunch in spite of, you know, the... I imagine butterflies, and the warden says you have a phone call. So what happens next? I just shut everything off. I didn't want to watch TV. People are running to me saying, Miss Alice, you're all over the news. But I shut it out. I said, I'm not missing my hamburger. I'm just going to go do something normal. It wasn't that I just wanted a hamburger so bad, but we only got them on Wednesday. I just wanted to do something normal and get out of the building. And as soon as I took a bite before I could even swallow it, I hear my name being called to report back to my unit. And when I got back to my unit, they told me I had a legal call. So I picked the phone up and Kim is on the phone with the lawyers. And she's telling me that we did it. And it still didn't register because I've just put it out of my head. And when she tells me that I was out of there, that I could go home. hmm. Every time I think about that moment, Kimmy, I cannot help but get emotional. Because it truly, I, I think I defied gravity at that moment. It felt I, I was jumping and screaming when it finally sunk in that I was going home. I still didn't know I was going that day. And uh, it just was a blur. And, I, you know, there was I was in like the middle of the hallway and on both sides were women because I was in the staff area, but there was women on each side of the locked doors and they could hear me screaming. And then they started screaming and I could hear them crying. You could hear crying through the doors and people, the women celebrating that I was going home. An hour and a half after that phone call, I heard my name being called to report to R&D with all of my property. What was it like to walk out that day? That institution had about 1,600 bed facility, about 1,300 women, almost 1,400 was there, but everybody had been locked down. They had to report back to their units because I didn't know why, but there was reporters that were everywhere. I didn't have no idea of what was going on on the outside. And a big cheer went up. They were screaming. You could hear it. When I walked down those stairs, the closer I got And when they saw me outside looking out of their windows, they had cups beating up against the window. They were beating the walls. It felt like the ground was shaking. They were screaming and crying. And I I could hear them saying, Miss Alice, don't forget about us. And when I took and made this motion of ripping my heart out and throwing it to them, they started stomping in the building so hard. I know that ground had to be shaking. 
And two of my friends and staff walked me to R&D. And waiting in R&D for me was the chaplain who I had grown to love so much. Staff were lined up, almost saluting me leaving. It was like an honor guard letting me walk through them. And when I walked out to the car and we passed this low facility camp, the same scene met me. They wouldn't let my family come in. And I didn't know why just one car could come on the premises. I still didn't know all of this media was out there. And when I passed by the camp, which was connected to the FCI, the more secure facility, all the women and all the staff were standing outside and they were screaming the same thing. Miss Alice, don't forget about us. We love you. And the staff was standing out there and it was almost at a salute as I passed by these folks and I was crying. But when I pulled up on the opposite side of the I saw all these cameras, family satellites, all these people were standing out there on the opposite side of the road waiting to get a glimpse of me. And my brother, you know, he was driving this van with my daughter and my son and my only great-grandson and my two granddaughters. They were all there and my son's wife. And when we pulled up and I saw my family, oh, my God, Kimmy, I just started running. The van hadn't even pulled to a close stop. And I heard someone say, look out, Miss Oddity. I wasn't even looking to see if a car was coming. And I paused just for a moment, and then I took off running. And I could still feel that my hands being up in the air. Because I went in with my hands cuffed behind my back, and my hands were free. No handcuffs, and I just ran into the arms of my family. I didn't even think about the media on the other side of the road. I just knew it's real. This is my family is here. I'm going home. You know, I heard you say that now being with your family, you're the one who always wants to take pictures and is forcing everyone (laughs) to take pictures (laughs) because you were missing. You were missing from all the family photos and the moments and the baby showers and the graduations. And so you just want to be with them and document that, which which is more convenient because there wasn't iPhones when you went. Right. There were no <laughs> iPhones. But when I came home and they had the iPhones, I was making them pull out pictures everywhere we went. We could be at the going into the grocery store. I want a picture with my family. I'm stopping to pause. <laughs> People would stop and ask, can we take a picture with you? I said, of course. And I tell my family, take a picture of this. <laughs> Not because I thought I was famous or anything, but I felt so much joy just seeing myself in pictures. I have so many crazy pictures. Uh, but that was a source of great joy to family be in pictures. Where are you in your life today with your family, with work? With my family, it's like we picked up because they always were fighting for me in prison and visiting me, and we stayed very close. So it wasn't the strangeness of reconnecting with family. It was just, I'm back in your presence now. But from the time that I ran across that road into freedom, I have not stopped running, Kimmy. I've been running to help change laws. I've been running to help people gain their freedom. I could not just get comfortable in my own freedom. I made a promise that I wouldn't stop fighting for them, and I have not. 
so many people who are free today who would tell me stories of what was happening in prisons around the country. And as they saw that I was not forgetting about their loved ones, everywhere they saw me, I was fighting for them. And in fact, I started an organization taking action for good. And I was really inspired not only by Kim, that she didn't just stand on the sidelines and say, oh, what a sad story of this lady. She actually took action. And so my organization became TAG because Taking Action for Good, TAG, that's the acronyms for it, because we all have the ability to do good and we can tag someone else to do the same thing. And so I've helped a lot of people gain their freedom. I've spoken with governors to influence them to grant more clemencies and pardons. I actually submitted personally over 100 clemency petitions to the White House when I came out. I would go into the Oval Office and plead, convince, work with the Office of the Pardon Attorney to help people gain their freedom. I've made that commitment, and I've really put everything aside to do this work to make a difference. Because, Kimmy, I had been given a great gift, and I felt that I had to pass this on, that this was very sacred to me. I could not take my second chance for granted. And so one of the things that I feel very committed to is to continue to highlight the stories of people who've made good of their second chance. And so that's what I'm doing right now. That's the mission I'm on, because if we forget, if we forget what has happened in the past, we are destined to repeat it. And I feel very strongly that with the uptick in crime, people are just very afraid right now. But the people who are committing these crimes, they're not the people who've gotten out of prison and made good choices. And so it's easy to point the fingers when you're looking for someone to blame. So it's an obligation of mine to keep telling their stories, to keep uplifting them, to keep helping their families have hope that things can change. My story, my situation is a perfect example of holding on to hope and never giving up. It's not just a story for prisoners. I think my story is a story for anyone who has found themselves in a hard place in life and maybe wish they could have a a redo, but they can't have a redo. But you can still look past darkness and see where there's light at the end of the tunnel because I'm not even supposed to be on this podcast today. I'm supposed to be locked up in a prison at this moment getting ready for a stand-up count. But instead, I'm, I'm here talking with you today. Alice, it is an honor and a privilege to know you and to play a part in sharing your message today. So, Thank you, and God bless you. God bless you, too, Kimmy. Thank you again, and I thank your listening audience for even taking the time to hear my story. Isn't she incredible? There is so much to talk about, and we can't wait to break it all down on next week's episode of A Little Wiser. Before we wrap, I want to ask you a favor. If you haven't heard All the Wiser was nominated for a Signal Award. If you haven't heard of Signal Awards, they're a big deal in podcasting. And we are one of four finalists in our category with over 2,000 submissions. 
We would love your support by heading on over to allthewiserpodcast.com slash votes to place a vote for the show. You can also scroll down in the show notes where you're listening to this podcast now and click on the link next to the word vote. Thank you for showing up for us. And we can't wait to be back with you next week. All the Wiser is produced by me, Erica Gerard, from Podkit Productions. I'm John LaSala, the editor and composer and sound designer. This is associate producer Tara Daigle. And I'm Kimmy Colt. Until next time, take care of yourself and one another. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.